Well, thank you, Jim, and to all the other mentors who mentored throughout Alpha and those of you who cooked meals. Thursday nights have been exciting around here for the past 10 weeks. Um, and I think it's appropriate when we hear uh, of God working that we give thanks to God for the people he used. And would you join me in giving thanks to God for his work and what he's doing, what he did? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much that you are a God at work. That you are a God not just who worked in the past. You are not a God who just will work in the future, but you are a God who is working right here in the present as well. Thank you that you are at work today, right now, right here, in this place and in our lives. Father, you did not choose to create this world and wind it up like a clock and let it go. Instead, you love this world that you created and you chose to be involved in it and active in it and to move in it. Thank you. So thank you for all the ways that you are at work. The ways that that many of us don't even know about, we aren't even aware of. There's ministries here at Ivanrest Church. There's ministries all around this community, around this world that, that we have no idea about. And Alpha is just one of them. Thank you for the past 10 weeks. Thank you for the lives that have been touched, both both the lives of those who have attended and the lives of those who have served and volunteered and how you touched their lives as well. Thank you for the seeds that have been planted. We pray that they would blossom and grow into a strong faith foundation. Thank you for your love that was demonstrated to these participants and felt in them. Lord, there's so many other ways that you are working even right here in this community. You're working through life groups. You're working through the various support groups that meet here all throughout the week. You're, you're working through the youth group gatherings. You're working through, through just friendships that are built within this community. Friendships that, that encourage each other with words and with cards and messages of support. That is you at work, God. Thank you that you're moving and alive in this congregation. And thank you that you are at work inside each and every individual, every single one of us. Father, some of us have been people of faith, people who believed in you and loved you since a very, very early age. We hardly know life without you. And and for many of us who have grown up with you, Father, we've taken you for granted. We've forgotten the, the great beauty Of our faith. Remind us that it's a gift from you. Remind us that this faith. This love for you is only possible. By the work of your Holy Spirit. And help us to celebrate the heritage. That you have given us. That we haven't had to go through. Life without you. That we haven't chosen to walk away. Thank you for your grace in our lives. And for your work within each one of us. Father, you are at work within us every day, pouring your blessings into our lives. We so often take those for granted. We assume that that somehow we deserve those blessings. Somehow we've earned them, that they belong to us. But remind us often that every good thing is a gift from you. Every blessing in this life is because of your grace and your love for us. And Lord God, you are at work every day, giving us strength for each day. We all have situations where we wish that you would act more visibly. 
we wish that you'd intervene more definitively. There's broken parts of our lives where we would really like you to get to work more boldly. And yet sometimes when we ask, when we ask you to intervene in our lives, your answer is no. But your answer is always yes when we ask for your presence. Your answer is yes and you give us strength to make it through each day. Your answer is yes and you remind us of your great love for us. Your answer is yes and you comfort us in our sorrows and our disappointments. Your answer is yes and you promise us the ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. You remind us that that all wrongs will be made right again. In your kingdom. And so Father thank you so much. For your work. In us. So often. Your spirit works through your word. We open your word and. And your spirit challenges us. And your spirit convicts us. And your spirit comforts us. And we're about to open your word together again. And I pray that we would be open to you being at work in us again. Shape us, change us, move us. As we continue to follow in your footsteps, Jesus, and to become more and more like you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, the end is near. The end of our... Lent Gospel readings. We have two weeks left. And again, I'll give the invitation again. If you haven't joined us yet, you can pick us pick up right where we are this week. we got two weeks left. And, uh, and we're not only towards the end of our Gospel reading, but we're coming to the end of Jesus' life. So these last two weeks' readings would be perfect to set you up to celebrate Easter and to hear the story of Jesus' death and resurrection again. Because the storm is brewing on the horizon for Jesus, okay? These last two weeks, he's heading towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. As he looks at Jerusalem, he sees the storm clouds hanging over top of it. Right? He is going to be arrested. He is going to be beaten. He's going to be tried and convicted. And he's going to be crucified and he's going to die. That's the storm he knows that he's walking into. And he also knows that he will rise again. And so Jesus is heading, that's what he's heading towards. He's heading towards Jerusalem now. And it's interesting because there's two things that happen just outside of Jerusalem. Two very key events in the city of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. It's the home of Jesus' best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, brothers and sisters. Right? If you're following the reading, yesterday's reading, the last reading we had was John chapter 11. And in that story, Jesus arrives in Bethany and his friend Lazarus has been dead for four days. Remember that story? And Jesus goes to the tomb. He weeps along with Mary. He weeps along with Martha. And he says, roll the stone away. They say, you don't want to do that. It's been four days. He says, roll the stone away. And he calls to Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out alive. It's It's really a defining moment. Right? It forces people to choose. Here is this dead man who's alive. What are you going to make of that? And so it says that, that is really a dividing line. Do you really believe in Jesus or not? Here's, here's Lazarus. Now you need to decide. It says that many people put their faith in Jesus. 
They stepped onto this side, said, you are the Messiah. I see a dead man alive to prove it. But it also says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin specifically, the 71 rulers, political and religious rulers of the day, they stepped on the other side of that dividing line. Jesus did not fit into their plans for their country, for their plans for their lives. So it says from that moment on, they looked for a way to arrest him, looked for a way to kill him. So, so knowing that, Jesus leaves Bethany. Okay, he's been heading towards Jerusalem. He realizes it's not his time yet. So he, he goes back up north. He's not afraid to die. He just knows that he's going to enter Jerusalem on his time, not their time. So he heads north for a little while, a couple weeks. And now it's Passover time. The time when he is going to enter Jerusalem. And so he comes back to Bethany again. Take out your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 11, page 1042 in the Bibles in front of you. Jesus is back in Bethany again. He, he's, he's back with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now it's just six days before the Passover. And now there will be no more turning back for Jesus, okay? There, there's no more avoiding Jerusalem. It's just six days and he will be heading in to Jerusalem. The clock is ticking on his life. And he gets, he gets to Bethany and we get to see in this story a stunning act of devotion. An act of devotion through which we learn what it will take from us to truly follow in Jesus' footsteps. Okay, here we get to see someone model for us what it means to be fully committed to following in Jesus' footsteps. And that someone is Mary. Listen to the first, uh, first 11 verses of John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. In, in this story, we see multiple people showing their devotion to Jesus. Right, you have, you have Martha. Remember, we met Martha before when Jesus visited the house before. Jesus shows up at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and, and Martha is busy in the kitchen trying to fix food, trying to prepare food for all these guests. And Mary, her sister, is sitting at Jesus' feet listening. And Martha's all upset about that, right? And she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, tell my sister to come and help me. 
Well, Martha seems to have found her place now, doesn't she? She recognizes that she's been given the gift of hospitality. So she's serving again. This time I can't help but think that she's doing it willingly and eagerly as her gift of devotion to Jesus. The one that she loves so deeply. The one who raised her brother from the dead. So she's showing her devotion and her service. And, and Lazarus is there. Just sitting next to Jesus at this dinner table was devotion. Right? Lazarus is a marked man now. Right? He is a walking advertisement for Jesus, isn't he? He can't help but see Lazarus and celebrate Jesus because he was dead and now is alive. And he had to know that by sitting next to Jesus at this dinner, by aligning himself, by staying devoted to Jesus, he was making himself a marked man. The chief priests now have a target out for Lazarus as well. The only way, the only way to stop him is to kill him. But the one I want us to look at this morning is Mary. Because I think she shows the clearest and most complete devotion to Jesus. Now, now before we talk further about, about devotion, I think we need to understand what that word is really all about. We use that word often, but have we ever really, really have a clear definition of it? So, so I looked it up on dictionary.com this past week. Gave gives us four options to define the word devotion. Here they are. Number one, devotion can be a profound dedication. Okay, devotion, profound dedication. Number two, it can be an earnest attachment to a cause or a person. You're devoted to that cause, you're devoted to that person. Number three, it's an assignment or appropriation to a purpose or a cause. Right, so I devote my wealth, I devote my time to something. Number four, often used in devotions. A religious or observance worship, of worship, right? You do devotions. Okay, there's your four options. And I looked at those, I thought, isn't it interesting that the first two are very different than the second two? In the first two, it's really a heart condition, right? Devotion is about your heart. It's about a love and a passion. It uses the words like profound and earnest. There's, there's a passion. There's a desire, a heart desire in those definitions. The second two, however, are very different. Instead of a devotion, be, devotion being a commitment and a desire lodged deep within your heart, with these second two, it's an, it's an action that we do, a choice that we make. Right? So, so we give our money because we're devoted. Or we sit down and we do our devotions. It struck me as I looked at those in those in the different categories that that we often can do devotion without really being devoted, can't we? I do it all the time. I do one and I do three and four, the actions of devotion, without really being devoted, without having this, this heart passion, this, this heart attachment. Right? I devote a lot of time to things that I'm not really devoted to. Right? I don't have this earnest attachment to my television set. And I hope you don't either, but my guess is we all devote a significant amount of time to that television set, don't we? I donate, I donate money to a number of causes that I'm not devoted to. Some I'm devoted to, I'm, I'm passionately engaged in that. Some I just give a little bit of money. I'm not devoted to it, but I show some devotion, right? Probably all of us at one time or another, as we do our daily devotions... We do it without much devotion. You ever have it where you read your Bible and you just realize, I have no idea what I just read. I just put in my time, right? I can check it off my list. 
Right? We, we can do devotion without being devoted. Let me lay it out this way. We've often made devotion one and the same as discipline. Right? Discipline and devotion. So we point to our acts of discipline and say, look at how devoted I am, right? Look at how much of the Bible I've read this year. Over Lent, I'm going to make it through all four Gospels. Look at that. Look at how much time I spend praying. Look at how many times I sign up to serve. Aren't I devoted? Well, maybe. Or maybe you're disciplined. And there's a difference. Okay, Discipline is what we do in order to change our hearts. Okay, it's, it's the action that over time grows a passion. Okay, that's discipline. Action that leads to passion. Devotion works exactly the opposite way. Devotion is the passion in my heart that then leads me to action. Do you get that? It's my heart that changes what I do. And interestingly enough, often what starts as a discipline can grow into devotion. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? I can remember back, back when my kids were little and they were learning to read. Maybe you have this too. They, they come home from school and, and they'd have the assignment that they need to read 20 minutes a day. Right? And so, and so we'd set the kitchen timer for 20 minutes and they would have to read. And there they would be. And that timer would go off. And right when that timer went off, done. Book shut. I'm done. Even in the middle of a sentence, it doesn't matter. I'm done. 20 minutes. There's my discipline, right? And then... As it went on, the timer would go off. We'd turn the timer off, and they'd keep reading. And then pretty soon, they'd pick up books without even being assigned. And you realize they moved from discipline to devotion. They're doing it because they want to. Right? Take piano lessons for an example. Right? I see Snickers already. Right? Here it is for me. 20 minutes a day, I would set that timer. When that timer went off, I am done. I don't care if I'm in the middle of a song. I am done. For some people, that discipline turns into devotion, and suddenly they're playing because they want to play the piano, even when they're not assigned. For me, I never got there. I hated every minute of it. Okay? It stayed a discipline. It never became devotion. In our relationship with God, the disciplines are meant to grow us to devotion. Maybe we start by saying, all right, I've got to do my Bible reading. Okay, that's a good place to start. But as you do it more and more, hopefully it becomes devotion. And you're doing it because you want to, because you love to. Pretty soon you're praying because you want to, not because you have to. Pretty soon you're giving, you're tithing because you want to, not because you have to. Pretty soon you're serving because you want to. Not because you have to. Your discipline becomes devotion. Your heart determines your action. And ultimately, it is devotion to God that will keep us following in Jesus' footsteps. Not discipline. It's devotion. It may start as discipline, but it's got to become devotion. Because discipline enough will not, discipline alone will not be enough to keep us walking down that path. Discipline alone is never enough to keep us doing something. Right? Discipline enough will not keep you playing the piano. I haven't played in, in 30 years because it was always just a discipline without devotion. Discipline alone will not keep you going to work out. It will not keep you eating healthy. It's got to become a devotion. A profound dedication. 
An earnest attachment to Jesus is what will keep you walking in his footsteps. And that true devotion is exactly what Mary shows us here in this story. And and in her act of devotion, we see two characteristics of devotion that will show up in our lives. Okay, You want to discern whether you're living in discipline or whether you're living out devotion? Well, here's two characteristics. First of all, Mary shows us that, that true devotion to Jesus is marked by extravagance. Okay, Mary's actions here at this dinner are nothing if not extravagant, right? It says that, that while they were having this special dinner together in Jesus' honor, Mary comes in, she walks over to Jesus, and she pours out a whole bottle of perfume over his feet. Okay, now this, this whole thing is not as awkward as we imagine it to be. Because remember, if you were here last week, remember how they were seated around the table, low table, the, the men would recline on their left arm and eat with their right, and their feet would be sticking out behind them. So Mary didn't need to crawl under a table to try and find Jesus' feet to do this, okay? But it still was a very unusual act and stunning in its extravagance. Because this wasn't just, just any perfume that Mary poured out over Jesus' feet. We, were told, we are told here that it was a bottle of pure nard, Okay, that doesn't mean much to us, but nard was a very expensive perfume that they imported from the mountains of India. Okay? In fact, it was so valuable that oftentimes nard was used as, a, as an investment commodity. You'd buy it like we buy gold. right? You invest in gold, you hold on to it, and, and watch, see if the price goes up. They would do that with this perfume. You'd buy a bottle, never intending to use it, but as an investment to make money. That's how valuable pure nard was. In fact, it's Judas in this story that tells us how much it's worth. It's worth a year's wages. So go home this afternoon, pull out your W-2 that you just had when you're working on your taxes. Look up your, your wages for last year. That's how much Mary is pouring out on Jesus' feet. That's a significant amount of money. That's a significant cost. That is an extravagant cost. Okay, this, this, this perfume, often, when it wasn't an investment, was only used for very special occasions, as you can imagine. Okay, when there was a great festival, when there was a, a family celebration, a black tie kind of event, where everyone puts on their very best, that's when they would break open this jar and use this perfume. It's kind of like, kind of like my suit that I own, the one suit that I have. It only gets broken out at special events. I'm not going to wear it often, right? So if you see me, if you see me wearing, this, wearing a suit, most likely I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to, to a, a party, a celebration where you pull out all the stops and you go a little extravagant, right? That's, that's where the ladies buy the new dress and you pull out the necklace that grandma used to wear and the guys rent the tuxedos. You go over the top. Well, that's what Mary's doing here. That's what this perfume is all about. Mary goes over the top. She, she breaks out the best and she gives it all to Jesus. She's lavishly excessive. And I found it interesting in verse 7, when Jesus comes to her defense, he doesn't tie this perfume poured on his feet to the celebration of life that they were having. They were celebrating Jesus. They were celebrating Lazarus together. He doesn't tie it to a celebration of life. He links her perfume to its other use. Because in that culture, they would also use this perfume in death. Just like my suit. 
I'm not going to a wedding. The other event that I take it out for is for a funeral. They would pull this perfume out at funerals. And they'd wrap the body in spices and perfumes. And that's what Jesus points to here with Mary's perfume. Remember when Jesus dies and Joseph um, takes him off the cross and wraps him and puts him in his tomb? The Bible tells us that they wrap him with 75 pounds of spices and perfumes. And then three days later, when the women are coming to the tomb, remember what they're coming to do? They're coming with perfumes and spices to wrap his body. Well, Jesus points at this perfume and says, this is for my death. He's preparing me for what's to come. With his face set towards Jerusalem, right? And the storm clouds that are gathering there. Jesus knew that Mary's extravagant gift was preparing him for the two. Extravagance. Devotion is extravagant. We, we like to receive things in extravagance, don't we? But it's not usually something we like to give. We love it when someone goes the extra mile for us, but it's a lot harder to go the extra mile for someone else. It's a lot harder to be extravagant towards God, too, isn't it? Let me ask this question, and it's not a rhetorical question. Answer it in your own mind. When is the last time that you were lavishly excessive towards God? When's the last time that you were exceedingly generous towards God? When's the last time that God would say that was unbelievably extravagant? Can you come up with a time when you were extravagant towards God? When's the last time you were extravagant in your prayer time? When's the last time you were extravagant in your Bible reading? In your worship? When's the last time you were unbelievably extravagant in your giving? In your love for Jesus? In your love for his people? That's a marker. That you move from discipline to devotion. Is there any extravagance that comes to mind? Discipline does what it has to get by. Devotion is extravagant. Hey, so true devotion shows up in extravagance. The second characteristic we see in Mary is what we talked about last week. True devotion shows up in, in great humility. And Mary models this extremely well for us. Right? It, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't unusual to have this perfume show up at a special feast like this. There were probably others there with a little bit of pure nard on them that night. But they definitely hadn't poured it on their feet Back in those days, if you had perfume, you'd put it in your hair. That's where it went. Not on their feet. And in that culture, dealing with somebody's feet was the most humiliating, degrading thing you could possibly do. You've heard that before, probably. They walk these dusty roads and they show up for a dinner like this. and, And usually there was a slave at the door there with a basin and towel to wash their feet. And and. The slave would be the one who was the lowest in the household. Only the lowest of the low got the task of washing somebody's feet. And here is Mary, 
She's not a servant. She's not a slave. She's one of the owners of the house. She lives there. And what does she do? She takes the role of the lowest of the slaves and she gets down on the floor and she washes Jesus' feet with her perfume. And if, as if that wasn't humbling enough, after pouring out her perfume, she, she undoes her hair and she uses her hair as a towel to wipe up Jesus' feet. And in that culture for a woman in public to undo her hair, to unpin it and let it come down, no respectable woman would ever do that. But Mary's devotion to Jesus, her, her attachment and her love for him was so strong, she didn't care what other people thought. She didn't care what they saw. She just knew that she loved him and she undid her hair and she dried his feet with her hair. So with Jesus' feet, with her hair let down, Mary places herself in a position of radical humility before Jesus, right where she belonged and right where you and I belong. True devotion is honest about who we are and where we stand before God. Right? We deserve nothing. He deserves all of us. And yet, far too often, we stop to calculate the cost for our devotion. We, we try and work somehow so that, so that devotion not only brings kingdom benefit, but brings us some benefit as well, right? We want others to respect us for our devotion. We want Jesus to reward us for our acts of obedience. We're willing to humble ourselves, yes, but only if there's a benefit and a blessing that we can get back in return. God, I'll do this, you do that. It's not the way true devotion works. In fact, the extravagance and the humility of true devotion will sometimes seemingly not accomplish anything. It's exactly what galled Judas in this story, right? He was a results-orientated man. And his objection to Mary's extravagance, to her extravagant humility, was that this perfume could have been sold and, and a lot of good could have been done for the poor if we would have sold it. It's a year's wages. Think of all the good you could do with all that money. What a waste. Judas looks at it and says, look, a year's wages poured out over his feet. And what do we have to show for it now? All we have is a smelly house. That's all. Come on. We could have done better than that. I think I might have responded like Judas. I'm a results-oriented person too, right? I hate to see that kind of waste. Like Judas, many of us are results-oriented. True devotion isn't. True devotion does not need to accomplish anything other than the highest calling in our lives, which is to honor God, Period. Is honoring God enough? You know, that, that's the primary investment we make. We, are, we do what we do to honor God. Oswald Chambers summarized it extremely well. He said, the highest Christian love is not devotion to a work or a cause, but to Jesus Christ. Often, often our acts of devotion will have a greater kingdom impact. And that's exciting to see. God will use our acts of devotion to change this world, to change someone's life. Like he's doing in, in the Alpha, 
program with the people who have shown their devotion there. But Mary shows that true devotion begins by simply giving great honor to God. And that in itself is enough. That's more than enough. Mary offered her best to Jesus in an extravagant expression of love. An extravagant expression of gratitude. An extravagant expression of devotion. And she did all that before she even knew the full extent of Jesus' love for her. Right? This is before Jesus walked into Jerusalem. This is before he chose to allow himself to be arrested and beaten. This is before he hung on the cross. This is before he rose from the dead. This is before Mary knew who Jesus truly was. How much more devoted should we be? We know. We know the full extent of Jesus' devotion to us. How devoted should we be? So in our readings this week, we're going to follow Jesus' footsteps into Jerusalem. We're going to walk right towards Good Friday and ultimately to Easter. As we do, ask yourself this question. As you read, ask yourself, am I following him out of discipline or am I following him out of devotion? Because there's a difference. If you answer discipline, that's not a bad answer. Okay, discipline's great to have. It's where we start, but it's not the end goal. We can't stay. Discipline must lead us towards devotion, an earnest attachment, a profound connection to Jesus. So how devoted are you to Jesus? Notice the question is not, how are you doing in your devotions? This is not an action question. It's a passion question. How deep is your love for your Lord? Is it deep enough to be extravagant in its expression? Is it deep enough to bring you to obedient faithfulness, no matter how humbling that might be? When discipline turns to devotion, that's when God does some amazing, miraculous, kingdom-shaping kinds of things. It's devotion that moves Mary to pour herself out at Jesus' feet. It's devotion that moves Jesus to walk towards that gathering storm for you and for me, to take the cross for us. And it's devotion that will open our ears, will open our hearts, will open our minds and our lives to hear the thunder roll of the voice of God that's still moving today. It's devotion that will keep us faithful even through the gathering storm. Ha, 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 ha.